The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It is a joy uh, and a privilege to share this time with you as uh, we look into God's Word together. We are going to be uh, in our second message on the book of Revelation. So let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 20. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Uh, the word of our Lord Jesus, the revelation of our Lord Jesus to his church in times of tribulation. So we in Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word, the revelation you have given to Jesus about him, his kingdom, his reign, his return. We thank you that this message is for us. It's for your people. And so we pray, Lord, for the power and the help of the Holy Spirit to come even now. Uh, for me, as I teach, Lord, please help me to be faithful and clear Give me the right heart, the right mind to speak your word. And Lord, I pray for everyone who hears, Father, that we'd have humble hearts, open eyes, open ears, Lord, uh, that we would hear and understand what you have to say, and we would believe it, take it to heart, that you might be glorified and we satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this is our second message through the book of Revelation. And a question I've received a couple times as we've begun this series is, why preach Revelation? So it reminds me that Revelation can feel daunting for many Christians to fully embrace. There's almost sometimes a hesitation um, to dive into Revelation. I was thinking about reasons for that. I think there's a couple. One is Revelation does seem hard to understand, doesn't it? And you get the idea that it's like doing advanced math. If you don't have the complicated formula, you'll never figure it out. You'll never know what it means. And so we're hesitant to dive into it, to embrace it. I think others are hesitant to engage in this book because they feel a little skeptical towards how they've heard it interpreted. Um, if you feel like you've been burned a couple times, you're not really sure what to do with it anymore. Uh, for instance, I'm old enough to remember Saddam Hussein. Remember that? And he was going to rebuild Babylon. And then you would hear, oh, he's the Antichrist from Revelation. And some of you are young enough to barely know who Saddam Hussein is anymore. Or you remember Y2K, right? It's the end times. Revelation has Y2K in it. And then Y2 nothing. It's not important. It's irrelevant. And so you see that when Revelation becomes mainly about the historical details of our lives, it quickly becomes irrelevant because the hot issues of our day only stay hot issues for so long. And so when we hear people interpret it that way, and then the way they interpret it doesn't seem to hold water or make sense, we feel skeptical about how to read the book. And so there's a hesitancy, I think, Christians have towards Revelation. Um, but as we saw last week, there's a real clear way to know what this letter means. Um, we learned last week Revelation is full of Old Testament allusions. Remember, allusions are an expression designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. So over and over and over again, hundreds of times really, pictures from the Old Testament will be painted for us in Revelation. But we see that as we understand the Old Testament and how it's working in this book, we can truly understand what it means Moreover, we, we saw last week that we're invited by the book itself to read it symbolically. The biblical symbols show us the true meaning of and for our lives. And so we shouldn't be hesitant to dive into Revelation. Rather, we should be hungry to take its message to heart. That's what John said last week. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and blessed are those who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Our Lord wants us to take this message to heart. And I think that's what our passage today is all about. It's why we should be hungry to take the message of Revelation to heart, to really engage in it, to, to embrace it, to let it form and change us. And so I'm gonna give you, I think, Three things in this passage that move us in that direction. First of all, we should take Revelation to heart because of the nature of the author's commissioning. We're going to see John and what he says about himself and what he says he was called to do. Uh, and that moves us to embrace the message of this book. Second, we want to see the authority behind John's commissioning. This passage is wonderful and unique for the incredible view of Jesus Christ that we get from it. We want to see who it was exactly that commissioned John 
for this purpose. And that's going to move us into embracing the message of this book. And then third, we want to see the purpose of the commissioning. Jesus shows us what he wants for us uh, as a result of engaging the message of this book. And we want to see what it is he's after so we can kind of fit into the streamline of what he's doing. So let's, let's, let's ask that question again. Why study Revelation? Why meditate on it? Why preach it? Well, it's because of the nature of the commissioning of the author. It's because of the authority behind that commissioning. It's because of the purpose of that commissioning. So we want to unpack those together this morning. Okay, first, the author's commissioning. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The first thing I want you to see is what John is saying about the nature of his relationship to the church. I think we could summarize it by saying this. John is saying he is in it with us. He's in it with us. Uh, we remember who John is. He's a first-hand witness of Jesus' life. He wrote the Gospel of John. We also know he was called by Jesus to be an apostle, to authoritatively proclaim Jesus um, to the world, to his church. And as John introduces himself as the author here in verse 9, I think it's really interesting to see what kind of term he uses to define himself. In verse 9 he says, I, John, your, your what? Your brother. Your brother. Think of the humility of John here. He could have said, I, John, your apostle. Listen up, I have authority. He could have said that. Instead he says brother. What's that mean? Well, remember 1 John 3, 1. This is a huge theme for John. This is what he wrote in his first letter. See what kind of love the Father has given to who? To us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. So John starts with this baseline identifier about who all Christians are, whether or not you're an apostle or not. If you trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sins as your Lord and King, you, you can know that you've been adopted into the family of God. And John says, I'm not standing way high above you. I'm standing here in it with you. I'm your brother. You're my brother. You're my sister. Such an important reminder for us, church. Who is it that makes us who we are? What is it that's our unifying factor today? What is it that defines our identity, that brings us together are we a church because we're better than everybody else because we have our own perfect righteousness? No. We're right with God because of Christ and his righteousness. He brings us into God's family. What is it that unifies us? Is it political understandings? Is it ethnicity? No. Our unity is Christ himself, who he is and what he has done. We belong to God and to one another because of Christ. John is saying, I am in this with you. I'm your brother in Christ. And he's also saying, we are in it together. Moreover, John says, he's our partner, our threefold partner. He shares something with us. I like the idea here of a foxhole friend. You know what that means, right? If, you, if you're in battle together with somebody, there's a bond you get going through those hard times together, fighting with and for one another. I think that's the spirit of this idea. There's a partnership we have as Christians. 
It's a threefold partnership. We're going to see what it is. But John is saying, I share that with you. I am in this with you. I'm your partner. I know what it's like. You're in it with me. I'm in it with you. And there's three parts to this partnership, he says. Number one, John says, I'm your partner in the tribulation. Your partner in the tribulation. What is that? That word means something like painful pressure. And it's unique to Christians. It's the difficulties Christians face living in a broken world that's hostile to Jesus as king. Tribulation, the difficulties of being a Christian in today's life, in today's world. And it's pretty interesting to realize John didn't say, hey, one day out there tribulation will come. He said, no, right now. I'm a partner with you in tribulation. And he means that very literally. Right now, as he writes, he's in exile to the island of Patmos. Historians tell us it was common for the Roman Empire to exile those it considered to be political enemies. We remember that at this day when John is writing, emperor worship is growing as the political correctness and the expectation of the day. And John continually proclaims that Jesus is Lord, the only one we worship. Jesus is the one we follow. So he was seen as, you know, denying emperor worship. And that led to his exile, which may have even included slave labor. Here John in his 90s is exiled. He knows what he's talking about when he says, I'm a partner with you in tribulation. And we remember, I guess we're remembering it more and more, aren't we, as the American church? The New Testament tells us that tribulation is normal. It's normal. I want to remind you of this. Look what Jesus said to his apostles in Matthew 24, verse 9. Matthew 24, verse 9. They will deliver you up to what? To tribulation. And put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. That's how it's going to go, Jesus says. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's just talking about the normal Christian life to the church in Rome, look what he says in Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Again, it's not the idea that, hey, one day out there, tribulation might come. It's, oh, no, it's right here. Let's be patient through it. Let's walk through it. Keep rejoicing. Keep praying. Acts 14, this was the message of the disciples to the young church of the day. Look at Acts 14, They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. This is incredible. The roadmap of our lives as Christians inevitably goes through tribulation. We must. In fact, that's the way to the kingdom. That's how we live out the kingdom now. And it's the road we must walk in order to see the kingdom in the future. So as far as your perspective on Revelation, sometimes we may hear, you know, tribulation is something that's going to come big and bad later, and maybe God will, you know, save us out of that incredibly. But that's not really the picture we get from John here. 
John says tribulation has begun now, and he's our partner with us in it. And it's going to be the, this way all the way until Jesus comes back. John says, I'm a partner with you in tribulation. But he's also a partner in the kingdom. A partner in the kingdom. We remember Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, when John proclaimed and praised to Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. All who trust in Christ are part of God's kingdom. We belong to him as citizens of his kingdom. In fact, his kingdom has begun its reign right in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. We want people to see his kingdom in the way we live and relate as a local church and with others. In fact, we participate with him in the growth of his kingdom today, don't we? We're royal priests uh, ministering in his name to this world. And of course, one day we will the inherit the kingdom that comes in fullness when Jesus returns. Let's just remember this incredible promise, Revelation 24. We will taste the kingdom in all its fullness. Excuse me, Revelation 21, verse 4. Here's the promise. Our God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's take a deep breath real quick. Doesn't that sound nice? It's coming. It's coming. We're partners in the tribulation. We're also partners in the kingdom. We're the partners in the kingdom through tribulation. That's why John says, we also participate in the patient endurance that is in Jesus. Patient endurance. And that's what, this, that's what this looks like right now. Jesus is king right now, and he's with us and leading us through tribulation as we live out his kingdom and await its fullness, which means a part of our lives today is patience. Patience means you wait knowing there's a purpose and a hope and a future. And endurance means you keep going faithfully even when it's hard, even when it's tedious, even when you feel like it's about to break you down. You don't quit. You don't stop. You keep going because, I love this, it's the patient endurance that's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Look at him. Did he not patiently endure like no one else? Man of sorrows, right? Acquainted with grief, patiently enduring the life the Father gave him, even to the point of a cross. He finished. He made it to the end. He rose from the dead. And that's the picture and the strength that we are given in Christ. We are partners in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. Jesus will equip and enable his people to endure as he has done. So this first point, John is saying, I'm in it with you. I'm your brother. I'm your partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. Then we see his commission. We see his commission. Verses 10 to 11. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. First of all, I love that while John was in exile, he still made it a priority to worship, didn't he? It was the Lord's day. What was he doing? He's in the spirit. And that probably means he was reading his Bible and praying. 
Maybe there are some other Christians around. We don't know. But he's worshiping. And we just remember, it's through faithfulness and tribulation that John enjoyed one of the greatest honors any human has ever received. A revelation of Jesus Christ. And Christians, there's something here for us. As we faithfully worship our Lord through tribulation, we will see more and more of him. In fact, that's what this book is about, to see more and more of Jesus. And as John is worshiping, he receives this prophetic commissioning. I just want to remind you, remember, Revelation is packed with Old Testament allusions. And they give us the meaning as to what is going on. And so you're going to see three parts to John's commissioning in these verses here. John's going to say he was in the spirit. John's going to say he heard a voice of a trumpet. John's going to say he sees the awesome son of man. And each of these things, of course, they were true and they were real in the experience of that vision. But they're not, they're not just uh, only there alone. They're illusions of Old Testament texts that tell us more of what's happening. So when John says, I'm in the spirit, he is. But that's also an echo of Ezekiel chapter 2, chapter 3. And John is saying, I'm called as a prophet as Ezekiel was called as a prophet. In fact, he's saying the vision I'm getting in here in Revelation fulfills everything Ezekiel was talking about. Moreover, he says he hears a voice like a trumpet. What's that trumpet about? Is it about this kind of sound that he heard, whether it was a trumpet or a tuba or a saxophone? Is that what this means? No, it's a a biblical illusion. Where do we hear trumpets in the Old Testament? Remember when God brought his people to Mount Sinai and his presence came down heavy and he was going to speak to his people and reveal himself to them? What sound did they hear? The sound of a trumpet. God has come and he is going to speak. That's what this picture is showing us here. God has come to John and he speaks with the same prophetic authority as Moses did. God has come to speak, and John is called as a prophet. More and more we see this in the way um, this chapter has fulfillments of Daniel 10. This section of Revelation 1 and the section in Daniel 10 uh, look nearly identical. In each case, you have a prophet who encounters a supernatural visitor. In each case, the prophet sees someone like a son of man who has eyes like fire, feet of bronze, speaks in a loud voice. In each case, the prophet falls down uh, unconscious or like he's dead. In each case, a supernatural hand touches the prophet, comforts him, and begins to explain the vision. So John is saying, I've been called as a prophet just like the prophet Daniel. And Revelation will continue to say, That it fulfills everything Daniel was looking towards. Daniel's told to seal up the vision. Revelation's told to open it. John is here as being commissioned as a prophet of prophets. Showing us the fulfillment of all God's promises from the prophets before. Here in this revelation of Jesus Christ. So now I want to wrap, put these two themes together. We said John is in it with us. And we're also seeing that John is commissioned for us. He's in it with it, with us. He's commissioned for us. Look at verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. 
Jesus is saying, you are a prophet for the sake of my people walking through tribulation towards the kingdom. He's commissioned with God's word to show us the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we can be enabled as brothers and sisters to walk through the tribulation with patient endurance, knowing we belong to Jesus' kingdom and we'll see its fullness. So John is in it with us. He's commissioned for us. Again, my question, why embrace Revelation? Why dive into Revelation? Why take this message to heart? Don't you see already? John is saying, I'm a partner with you in this. And I've been commissioned with God's word for you in this. And this is the top shelf. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of all the promises come before. And it's for you now, here, today, to give you what you need through tribulation. It's timely, isn't it? It's timely. We may be in a time where we taste more tribulation than we in our context have ever experienced. And it's amazing, isn't it, that Jesus already has given us everything we need for this. He's always given everything his church needs for times of tribulation. He has called this apostle who's in it with us to be commissioned for us and speak the word of God to us. So that's the first point, the commissioning. Second point, we want to see the authority, the authority behind the commissioning. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. John turns and he sees this awesome figure standing among lampstands. Well, maybe like never before, these verses, verses 12 to 17, are just chock full of biblical allusions. We have fulfillments of Daniel 7, Daniel 10, especially Zechariah chapter 4. I feel like I need to unpack a little bit of Zechariah 4 for you here so you can see how it fits with Revelation so we can understand what's going on. So give me just a few minutes here in Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah wrote some 500 years before Jesus, just after Israel's return to Jerusalem after the exile. And in that context, they were struggling. They were struggling to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah has this vision in chapter four, and I just wanna highlight three things that he saw there. Number one, Zechariah saw a lampstand with seven lamps. Number two, those lamps were flanked by olive trees. And number three, an angel comes to explain things to him. Okay, just the basics there. He saw a lampstand with seven lamps flanked by two olive trees. An angel comes to explain things to him. Now let's remember what John sees here in Revelation. John sees seven lampstands with the son of man standing among them. And the son of man explains things to him. So we want to unpack these things and see how they relate so we can see what John is saying. In Zechariah, the lampstands represent God's rebuilding of the temple after exile. And what does that mean? It illustrates that God is restoring his presence among his people, right? He had judged them in exile, but now he's building them up. He's going to dwell among them. He's going to be with them. And in the vision, this renewal is enabled by two olive trees. So just think with me, what's a lamp supposed to do? It's supposed to burn and shine a light, right? And what did an old-fashioned lamp rely on to, to burn, to shine that light? It needs oil. 
olive oil. So what's the significance of two olive trees among this, this lamp? Well, an olive tree is a continual supply of olives and olive oil so that that lamp can, will never stop burning. It will continue to glow and thrive. So what do these olive trees represent in that vision in Zechariah? In Zechariah, the two olive trees represent two leaders anointed by the Holy Spirit. One is Joshua, the anointed priest who teaches and mediates for God. The other is Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of David. You remember? That fundamental king of this dynasty God will build. And so to summarize Zechariah, he's saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the king and the priest will oversee the renewal of the people of God as the temple is restored. Does that make sense? Now, how does this pertain to Revelation? Our text today. Revelation 120. Who are the seven lampstands? Which represented the temple in Zechariah. They're the seven churches. Do you see? The lampstand here represents then all people today who trust in Jesus according to his word. They're the people who have repented of their sin, who trust him as Savior, follow him as Lord. It's the church. That's what John says. The lampstand is a church, God's temple on earth. And just as Zechariah saw olive trees among the lamps, who's among, who's among John's lampstands here in this vision? It's Jesus. Jesus is the olive trees. What does that mean? Well, isn't he the one uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit to win the people of God, to build them up? Moreover, isn't he the true priest who gave himself up as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people? Isn't he the true king, the descendant of David, who rose from the dead and now reigns forever? This is what John is saying. Zechariah is fulfilled in the reign of Christ. And this is the one who's commissioning John. It's Jesus, the resurrected Jesus himself. So John turns to see the voice. And we get this incredible picture. I want to walk through verses 13 to 16 with you now. Verse 13, John says he sees one like a son of man. That's a biblical allusion from Daniel 7. Read Daniel 7 and you'll see the one like the son of man who's king of kings and lord of lords and he'll reign forever and ever. Moreover, in verse 13, the Son of Man is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. This refers to Exodus 28. And we see here that the Son of Man is dressed as a royal priest. In fact, he's the high priest. He's the one who teaches us, who offered himself for us once and for all on the cross. He's the one who intercedes for us and offers us forgiveness. And guess where he walks right now? He walks among his lampstands. Do you realize what this means? Where is Jesus? He's right here. He's with his churches. He's close. And just like we're a lamp in need of oil, Jesus, our anointed priest and king, he brings the oil to build us up, to make us into his people on earth. We'll go on, look at verse 14. John sees him and he says, the hairs of his head were white. 
Let's practice reading Revelation well. Is this Jesus' fashion sense? Is this the color of hair he prefers? No, come on, it's ridiculous, right? What are we looking for? We're looking for biblical illusions. Remember Daniel 7, 9? Look what Daniel saw about the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Do you see in his hair? The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. When, when Jesus' hair is white, it's not like white, white like paper. It's white like brightness. And it shows that he shares the sovereign eternality of the ancient of days. He is God of gods and he judges from his throne. That's who Jesus is. Verse 14, his eyes are like fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24, the Lord God judges as a consuming fire. You know what this means? Jesus sees all as the judge of all. He knows perfectly. He knows you, your motives, your mindset, what you live for. He's the one before whom all excuses fade. All murkiness is made plain. All is exposed before him in his eyes of fire. And he judges the world with perfection, with excellence, with righteousness. That's who Jesus is. Verse 15, his feet are like bronze, refined in the fire, glowing hot. This shows you the perfect purity of Jesus' character, the perfect purity of his integrity, and how in him there's nothing corrupt. He is pure goodness, pure truth, and he is out to purify his church and make them holy as he is holy. Verse 15, we hear his voice. His voice is like the roar of many waters. I remember visiting Niagara Falls and the closer and closer you get to that waterfall, the less and less you hear of anything else other than, and it's not even just that you hear it, you feel it and nothing else. It dominates all. That's the power of the word of God through Jesus Christ when he speaks. It is the word that upholds the universe it is the word that defines all. In fact, look at verse 16. From his mouth comes, what? A sword. This is a reference to Isaiah eleven four. Jesus speaks the truth that cuts, it confronts, it reveals, it is authoritative. And by his word, every life, every motivation, every movement will be measured. His word is fundamental. Oh, do you see this picture of Jesus? It's not a Polaroid, right? It's not about his fashion and how long he likes his robes and that he wears sashes. Uh, it's, it's not about the color of his hair. No, as we read this biblically and see the illusions from the Old Testament and we see the symbolism, this is not a picture of what Jesus looks like. This is a picture of who Jesus is. He's the divine king and priest who judges the world according to his word. And verse 16, his face is like the sun shining in full strength. You know, even in the middle of the day today, if you go outside and stare straight up, look right at the sun, you can burn your eyeballs. And that is a symbol to show us the holy, radiant glory of Jesus Christ. His majesty is undefinable, majestic, 
And this is probably a reference to Judges 5.31 about how Jesus is the victorious warrior. The darkness cannot overcome his great light. So who is this that's commissioning John as a prophet? It's the ultimate one. It's Jesus Christ. And what kind of a response should that stir up in you as you see this revelation? We'll look at verse 17. John says, when I saw him, let's just pause for a moment. You know, sometimes pop culture gives the idea that Jesus is kind of like Mr. Rogers uh, in that he's a really nice guy. Or he's a Dr. Phil in that he's kind of like, he gives good advice. Or he's your buddy or your boyfriend, or I saw on a bumper sticker, your co-pilot. Or he's lightweight or trivial. We remember, John was probably Jesus' best friend during his earthly ministry. John is leaning on his shoulder during the Last Supper. And when John sees Jesus here, he does not look up and say, Hey, what's up, Jesus? How's heaven treating you? He falls at his feet as though dead. What does this tell you? Our Lord is awesome and overwhelming. John's response to Jesus is like Isaiah's response in the vision of Isaiah 6. He falls down, he's undone, he's overwhelmed. Friends, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This book is about who he is. Jesus has commissioned John to show us who he is. And so we have to ask, what is your response to Jesus? Does it fit who he truly is? Have you bowed the knees of your heart to him in worship? Why preach revelation? Why spend time to dig into it? Why? Because John is in it with us and has been commissioned as a prophet for us. And John has been commissioned by none other than the awesome, overwhelming, divine priest and king who will judge the world by his word, Jesus. That's who's speaking to me and to you in our times of tribulation. And now we want to see what Jesus' purpose is in this. We'll look now to verse 17. John says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. What's the first thing Jesus wants to do for us as we read Revelation? He wants us to be so overwhelmed by him that all our other fears are done away with. He wants to overwhelm our fear by how overwhelming he is. Do not be afraid. Don't you love this? Jesus lays his right hand on John. (laughs) It's the beauty of Jesus. He's so powerful and majestic that John sees him and falls down like he's dead. But Jesus is so kind and humble and compassionate that he actually comforts him and lifts him up and says, don't be afraid. That's our king. Fear not, Jesus says. I need to put that on repeat. Put that on my headphones, hit play, repeat. What's Jesus say to his church in tribulation? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think there's two parts of this. Number one, I think Jesus seems to be saying, don't be afraid of me. (laughs) Not that he's not overwhelming. He is. 
but because he's loving. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us by his blood. Yes, I am the holy, divine, awesome king and priest who judges the world according to my word. And I am the one who came and who died for you and who rose for you. I reign for you. Trust the love of Jesus in the gospel. Died for your sins, rose from the dead. If you trust in him, you can know his forgiveness. You can hear him say, fear not. Second, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of the tribulation. Don't be afraid of the tribulation. Oh, Jesus, that's easier said than done. Tribulation is difficult, it's hard, it's painful. And Jesus says, I know, but look what else he says. I am the first and the last and the living one. The first and the last. This is a claim of Jesus to be truly and totally divine. He is fully God, the first and the last. And it also shows you that he rules sovereignly over tribulation over every detail of your tribulation. In fact, he's the living one. He's the one who's gone before. He went through tribulation first, worst tribulation than we'll ever see, and he did it faithfully, and he rose from the dead. He won, he overcame, he's victorious, and he's saying, follow me. I am sovereign over your tribulation, and I will bring you where I have come. Victorious resurrection. I'm the living one. He says, I died. I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and and Hades. You know, our tribulation will hit its expiration date. You know when that is? Death. There it can go no further. And Jesus says, I have the keys. The keys to what? death when when you when you're my when you're part of my family a part of my kingdom jesus says and you die open that door i bring you myself and life eternal the tribulation the tribulation doesn't own you it can't have you you're mine you're mine and i'm going to save you from it oh so good He has the keys. So Jesus wants to overcome our fear. That's one thing he wants to do through this revelation. The other thing he wants to do is build us up as his temple on earth. He wants to build us up so that we can reign for him, through him, even in this time of tribulation as we live out his kingdom faithfully, no matter the cost. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, Write therefore the things you've seen, things that are, and those that are about to take place after this. The way I understand that verse is just saying that the time between Jesus' resurrection and return is all about enduring tribulation because we know Jesus is king over all of it and will return. And this revelation that Jesus is giving has what we need to understand our times this time and to endure faithfully through it. Then in verse 20, Jesus says, As for the mysteries of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now here we might say, okay, what? Uh, What does that have to do with Jesus' purpose in giving us revelation? Well, let's just remember seven. What does seven mean? 
Well, there were seven real churches. In fact, they were, Jesus put them in geographical order. If you were a messenger with this letter, you would actually go in the order that he gave. It would work uh, on the map. But seven means more than that. What does seven mean symbolically? Seven days makes a complete week. Seven churches makes all the churches. In fact, every letter he wrote to each church is for every church, for all churches of all time. This is a message to the entire church. And then look what, he, look what he says next. The seven stars, he says, are the seven angels of the seven churches. Okay, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, let's pra- uh, what's, what's the wrong way to, to read this? Say we, say we read it literally, and we start to ask questions like this. Well, are the angels really small? I mean, they must be short and small, right, to all sit in Jesus' hand. Is that the right question to be asking? Or maybe it's, oh, maybe Jesus' hand is just massive, and so he can actually hold seven angels on his hand. Wait, he touched John with his right hand. Did he have to put the angels down and then touch John and then pick them up real quick as John looked up? Of course, these are ridiculous questions. What am I doing? I'm I'm, I'm reading it woodenly. I'm reading it literally. I'm reading it in the way Revelation said not to read it. What if we read it symbolically? Let's read it symbolically. What are angels? They're ministering servants for the sake of God's people. And what do angels do? You know what you see many times in the book of Revelation about what angels do? They worship in the throne room of God. They're worshipers. So many commentators have said the idea that every church has an angel shows us that we have a heavenly representation. We are represented there in the throne room of God in the sense that angels worship him and minister to us. It's a a link to who we are and where our true home is. And that's what you get in the idea of the hand, of the hand. If these angels represent the churches, then where are the churches? They're in the hand of Jesus. So he both walks among them like a priest through the temple with this image of the church being a lampstand. And he holds us near with this image of the angels being in his hand. And it shows you, right? We are known. We are loved. We are valued. We are protected. Part of the symbolism of Revelation is to show us the truth that goes deeper than our first perception. Revelation shows us things are not always as they seem. We know that the church can look so weak and so pathetic. And even as we go through these letters to the seven churches in the next several weeks, we'll see that some of them are deeply, deeply flawed. It would be hard to see them sometimes as a temple, hard to see them sometimes as a kingdom. But the symbolism of Revelation helps us see the truth, helps us see the reality, even for our sake here at Fountain of Life. What are we? We're small, we're weak, we have problems, we struggle. But who are we? We're held in the hand of Jesus. He walks among us. We're represented in the heavenly places. We are known by the Father. We have a priest who intercedes, and he's going to be with us and walk through, a, through tribulation with us and get us to his kingdom. 
And that's the purpose of John's commissioning by this great king and priest is that Jesus, through this message, would build up his people as his temple on earth. That through tribulation, we would glow with the light of his presence by the power of the Spirit. How are we going to be who we're supposed to be? Take this message to heart. Take this message to heart. And mostly for today... See Jesus. See Jesus. There's a million other things we could talk about. There's a million other things dominating our attention right there, right now. There's a million concerns we have. But let's just look to the one whose face glows like the sun. Let's hear the voice of the one who booms like a waterfall, who cuts like a sword. Let's be in awe of who Jesus is the divine king and priest who judges the world according to his word. And let's realize he has commissioned John, who's in it with us as a brother, a partner in tribulation, partner in the kingdom, partner in the endurance. He's commissioned him as a prophet for the church in times like these, times of tribulation, so that we might see Jesus and be built up by him as his temple and glow with his glory, even through times of tribulation so that we might endure faithfully to the end and taste the fullness of the kingdom that is coming. Trust Jesus to save you. Worship Jesus to satisfy you. Follow Jesus to lead you. This is the revelation of who he is, and he is the one that we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word in all its beauty, in all its complication, and um, all the pictures it throws at us. And as we meditate on them, by the power of your spirit, we see who Jesus is. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would be um, enlightened, spiritually enlightened, to see the overwhelming beauty of our King the power of who he is as judge, the kindness he is as priest who intercedes for us, that we remember the gospel, that this is the one who lived and died and rose for us, and this is the one who's speaking to us. And I pray that as we see Jesus and hear his voice from this prophet, his servant John, Lord, that we would be built up. Fountain of Life would be built up. Every one of your local churches everywhere would be built up to be your temple, your kingdom here on earth, and we'd have the strength to walk through tribulation as your royal priests and priestesses until Jesus returns, until we receive the fullness of everything promised. Do this for us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.